Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week we are joined by the founders of Better Tomorrow Ventures, also known as BTV, Jake Gibson, and Sheil Manat. Before starting the firm in 2020, Jake and Sheil had worked together at 500 Startups, where Sheil was a partner of the FinTech Fund. Additionally, before starting their investing careers, both Jake and Sheil were FinTech founders, as Sheil built and sold two FinTech companies, and Jake co-founded NerdWallet, which is now publicly traded. Although we happened to record this episode after they had spent a long week at Money 2020, they, as usual, were able to bring some great insights on things ranging from the fintech industry as a whole, all the way to raising a venture fund. I really think you'll enjoy this episode, so let's tune in now. Guys, it's so great seeing you, and thanks for uh, joining us today. Hey, this is Sheil. Thanks for having us. Hey, this is Jake. Yeah, thank you. Guys, I'm psyched to have you both on today, and especially because this will be the first episode we launch of Venture Unlocked <laughs> in 2023, and I've known both of you for a while, going back to the early days of BTV, and Sheila, in your case, 500 startups, where I know you and Jake met, but maybe we can start off with the origin story of what really inspired BTV and the two of you joining forces, and maybe we'll start with you, Sheila. 500 startups had invested in one of my previous companies asked me to join them sort of towards the end of 2015. I was coming off an exit and I thought I'd go just spend some time meeting with entrepreneurs, offering mentorship. I found that I really enjoyed it. And then at the beginning of 2016, I decided to lead and sort of my own accelerator focused on FinTech. NerdWallet was actually had an office in the same building. So I saw it in the elevator every day growing up. And then, um, Jake and I got connected through like a friend of a friend that, we, that I was working with and I had him come in pretty early on um, when I, when I started and uh, he just came in to, to mentor the companies. They all, I was having everyone review the mentors after they came in and he just ranked super highly. I was in the process at that point. So I, I had been out of nerd wallet for a couple of years and was spending my time angel investing mostly as kind of an excuse to like, meet a bunch of founders and help them out however I could. And, um, you know, I was working with a couple of different accelerators. Like I was going to do office hours, just, you know, it, it, anything I could do to kind of fill my time, like meeting founders and then helping people. And, and, uh, I was doing office hours at 500 when, like she said, a friend of a friend was like, Oh, we have a guy who's actually doing a FinTech thing. Um, why don't you go meet up with him also and see if his companies could use your help. And, that was Shield. So we got connected. I went into office hours with his first cohort of companies and found those companies to be like head and shoulder, like uh, versus fintech companies that I'd seen in other accelerators. Like I felt like all the companies in this cohort were really high quality and really liked the founders. And I ended up investing in two of them um, out of the six, and then really enjoyed kind of jamming on these things with with Shield. And, and so he managed to convince me to kind of stay on and, and keep helping in, in future cohorts. And then as you guys work together, you know, during that time, and, you know, I know, you know, initially, Jake, you weren't really full-time kind of partner. You're, you know, helping some of the, uh, the founders working alongside Shale. As you guys started to think about actually launching your own firm, and I, and I remember some of those conversations, how did you assess, was this partnership going to work? And what were sort of the key characteristics that kind of you looked at each other and said, okay, like, we're the perfect people to build this together because of X? It kind of seemed natural. Like it was almost like an assumed thing after we'd spent kind of three years working together that if we ended up doing something, we were going to do it together. I think the biggest question for us was not, did we want to work together? It was more, 
if we do this, like, what are we going to do exactly? And, you know, we knew from talking to everybody else in the space, including you, that there are like a thousand seed funds out there. And so, and they're all fundraising. And so we didn't want to just come to market and be like, Hey guys, we're the thousand and first seed fund. Uh, give us all your money. And then especially if we were going to be raising money from like friends and family and stuff like that, we wanted to make sure we had like a real thesis and a real differentiator. We wanted to make sure that if we did come to market and decide to start this fund, that uh, we, we had a, like a really good story around how we were actually going to generate of top tier returns uh, and not just kind of play angel investor with other people's money. One of the things I remember thinking when I first met you guys together was this unique blend of operating and investing experience that you both had. And both of you had raised capital for your companies and shale like believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that you had raised some money for your fintech fund under the 500 startups umbrella. But BTV1 was launched at the early days or around the early days of the pandemic. And at the time, people were still getting used to fundraising over Zoom and virtual fundraising. You ultimately not only got the fund done, but were oversubscribed with some great institutional LPs. Maybe you can walk us through that experience and Maybe some of the things that you learned. So I had some background in it from 500 Startups. So I had raised a small fund, $15 million fund, 500 FinTech in, in 2017 that Jake, that Jake could help with. And so we knew, we knew one thing was we didn't want to ever not be in market. So some people had given us the advice of go out and raise the fund and then start deploying. We did not take that advice. We, in, in fact, actually, before we even had a pitch deck or name, we had committed to leading our first deal. So we, we were not going to start, you know, we were not going to stop um, investing to do the fundraise. Um, so we knew, and we, we'd committed that first deal, I think it was August or September of 2019. And then we knew we had to get it to a close quickly so we could fund this company. So then, you know, we put our materials together. We did a first close that was largely people that knew us already. Um, so it was, people who knew and trusted us. And then the only new investor that didn't know us before was Sendana. And they we were really fortunate to have them with the pilot check at that time. And they were really helpful in thinking through our fund, like fund math. And they had us draw on a whiteboard how we thought about the fund por- portfolio construction. And the truth is we actually hadn't thought about it before. They had asked us to whiteboard it out. <laughs> but then, okay, so then, so we do a first close December, 2019, um, it's 18.6 million, if I remember correctly. And the goal was 60 million at the time. And so then, you know, beginning of the year, we thought, okay, now we'll go out to institutionals. And we met with a bunch of folks. We got a lot of no's. Um, and then it started to seem like we had a lot of momentum going into March. So we thought, okay, March 30th, 2020, that's going to be our close. Obviously, <laughs> that was a very bad time <laughs> to try to close. And uh, I don't, I don't think we had closed any dollars then. We did. Industry was like the only meaningful LP they committed like in on March 13th or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So right before it got really bad. Yeah. We, we were in New York, like as the world was blowing up before things had fully locked down. Uh, call from, from JR. And we, we actually, speaking of that, New York, we've only ever done one trip um, for fundraising across both funds, which I think is unique. Um, but it was the trip when the world shut down 
I don't think we got anything, any LPs out of that trip. No. And like half the face-to-face meetings got canceled while we were there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, you get this, you get this buzzsaw, like where everything shuts down. And of course, you know, everyone goes into hiding, at least for those two months. Like we, at that time, we actually didn't know how long it would last. And, you know, everyone was, you know, prognosticating that it would be like kind of pretty, a pretty severe kind of recessionary period. And of course, the markets. We, we sent an email to our LPs saying, you know, we raised this 20 million to start and we wanted to raise 60. Instead of raising 60, we're going to raise something smaller, like 40. But you know what? <laughs> it's going to be okay because valuations are going to be way lower than they were. <laughs> and then, of course, all of that, you know, just a couple of weeks after we hit send on that email, like all of that was completely negated, you know, money printer, everything, inf- stimulus, everything. Um, it, it was crazy. Like we, it was the first time we've ever sent a quarterly update before the end of the quarter <laughs> um, in March of 2020. And it was like, Phil said, we were just like, this fund is probably only going to be half what we thought it was going to be. But here's kind of what that means strategically. Here's how we're going to invest it. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, like nobody answered our calls for probably six to eight weeks. Um, <laughs> nobody answered any calls. Like we were just too busy, like triaging the portfolio and just sitting around at home, not going anywhere. <laughs> well, I was. She'll, she'll was she'll. <laughs> it was everywhere except home. <laughs> <So proud. laughs> but, I, I got an um, RV with the buddy and started driving around the country. <laughs> That's right. I, I think I did see that. But you, you're right. I mean, during that time, there's like this two to three month period where no one is returning calls. Everyone was in a, a state of you know paralysis, really. And, and, you know, you brought up this point of some people gave you this advice. OK, raise the entire fund, then start, you know, allocating it to companies. The typical advice is actually the counter to that, which is just get in business, start writing checks, show you know, the type of companies and LPs will start to get a sense of like your investing uh, thesis in, in motion. But, you know, when you went through that whiteboard with Sindana and you were kind of mapping out portfolio construction based on the $60 million fund, you, you get to March and you're, you're sending out this email to your LP saying, well, maybe it's going to only be 40. How are you doing your check sizing? How did you think about that portfolio construction? Because ultimately you got there and you got there above that 60 and ultimately closed at 75. But were you sizing your checks differently because the market had changed? I don't think we weren't sizing the checks differently. I don't think um, because we hadn't that made that many investments at that point. Uh, it was more that we were a little gun shy. Uh, I think in, in, in the kind of spring and summer of 2020, there were probably I could probably think of like two or three different investments that like we probably would have liked to have done. Um, but we're like being really stingy on valuation and ownership and stuff like that. I mean, we're, we're always kind of stingy on valuation and ownership, but we were being particularly uh, kind of conservative at, at that moment in time. From the end of 2019 until uh, like Q3 of 2020, until we like kind of fully closed the fund, we only did a, a small handful of investments. Like uh, we kind of accelerated a lot past that. Most of that fund was deployed between like Q3 of 2020 and Q4 of 2021. Yeah, it was interesting. It, like, we were thinking about raising a smaller fund at that point, and kind of just assuming that like valuations would come down and the check size would come down accordingly. Like, we we didn't think that we weren't planning on saying like, okay, we're just not going to go for the same ownership or uh, or anything like that. Like, we're we weren't kind of being skittish around around the check size in, in that respect. We just kind of assumed that the market would come down to meet us, and, uh, and obviously that didn't happen. Although. It ended up kind of being a blessing and a curse. You know, we, we might have missed out on a couple of deals that way, but at the same time, like once the market opened back up, 
it really opened back up. Like, you know, FinTech was crazy hot. Like all the people that we had already been talking to before things shut down kind of came out of the woodwork and, and wanted to talk to us. And then since everybody decided to get back to work and do it all on Zoom, and that was all okay with everybody now, fundraising became much more efficient. It, it used to be a world where you'd be talking to an LP and they'd be like, oh, next time you're in Omaha, hit me up. Or, you know, I'm going to be in San Francisco in eight months. We can just talk then. You know, that all kind of went away. And we'd have days in the summer of 2020 where we talked to LPs and like, like, Europe, Israel, Japan, Texas, New York, California, like all in the same day, like back to back. <laughs> and uh, so fundraising got, got a lot more efficient at that point. And then even LPs who had passed early in the, in the fundraise just like kind of reached out out of nowhere. They're like, oh, we are looking at fintech. You know, it's a category that we're interested in now, even though we told you six months ago that <laughs> we didn't think it was a worthwhile endeavor. <laughs> um, Somebody told us that we needed to talk to you about it, and uh, and so things really accelerated this summer. And then we were able to really kind of execute on the strategy as 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 we had initially planned. To some, to most extent, it also meant that like we had to start operating at a much different level <laughs> than we thought we would have to. So, core strategy, fund construction, everything was largely the same, but at the same time, like we had to start working a lot harder, working a lot faster, and start thinking about the firm uh, much more aggressively. It's funny, I actually think that somebody that wasn't interested in fintech becomes interested in once the markets you know turn around and you know there's liquidity pumped into the system but was there an inflection point i guess in the in the fundraise because you mentioned you know raising that first amount from you know a lot of your existing people that had backed you in the in the past then having this lull because of the pandemic starting and then ultimately everything picking up was there anything that really kind of catalyzed that rest of the fundraise which not only got it to target but above target was it getting an anchor, a reference anchor, or was it just, just generally speaking, it was just a momentum that was built from all the conversations that you had led up, you know, leading up to, you know, the market reopening? I, I think it was more the latter. We didn't have an anchor. So in fund one, which ended up being 75 million bucks, our largest check was 5 million bucks. So it was a lot of smaller checks. We can talk about it later, but that actually played into fund two being an easier raise because a lot of those small checks ended up converting into much larger checks in fund two. So it was really, I think, momentum around probably fintech as a category, if I'm being honest. Um, and then probably us as relatively well-respected managers, you know, people did a lot of homework on us at that time. And I think we did a good job of making sure that the LPs we pitched knew that other folks that they knew respected us. Anecdotally, there was, um, during that first fund process, there were actually a few people that called me for references. And one of them actually told me that they had done 42 references on you guys. Uh, and I was like, number four, I was like, so now I'm number 43. <laughs> yeah. That's where I fall on the list. But it did show you, like, even though like the, the market had turned around, people were still doing a ton of diligence in investing in new funds. Because to your point, at that point, there was like 1,400 seed funds. Exactly. Yeah. I'd say I would also credit like uh, Sindana and, and industry who were kind of the first institutional investors. Like they, they, they were relationships that we had before we started the fund um, that, that we had been kind of cultivating for a while. And they, they did a lot of work on the, on the fintech sector as a whole, and then did a lot of work on us individually and uh, getting those early commitments from them 
I think really kind of catalyzed a lot of the rest of it. As we talked to family offices and other fund of funds, we're like, just call Graham, call JR. They've done the work already. They're like, they'll just summarize for you <laughs> all the references they've called, all the diligence they've done. Uh, and that, that helped a lot as well. Like having that early support from them, I think, uh, was probably one of the biggest components of, of momentum for us beyond just like the macro and the fact that we were really lucky with our timing. Was was there anything just looking back guys um, that surprised you about the fundraise that, and I know Sheila, you raised that $15 million, 500 startups fund, but anything surprising during that first process? I think it went mostly how we thought it would. Like we knew it was going to be a slog and it took, it took us you know, almost a year from, from start to finish. I think we probably, you know, we probably lost a couple of months because of the pandemic. So, you know, call it, call it nine or 10 months. But I think we, aside from the pandemic time, we kind of knew that we would get there. Like it would just take time. We didn't know, we ended up having a lot of success with fund of funds. And I think that's partially a function of our fund construction and model being a good fit for fund of funds, partially being those are people that we could access because, you know, people find it easy to introduce you to other, to fund of funds. Um, but, you know, in that fund one, we had uh, Greenspring, Sendana, Industry, Invesco, and Vintage, all all fund of funds that, that came into that first fund. It's, it's a great group of investors. And your exercise with Sundana in the early days to map out portfolio construction in a way that was formulaic, at least to a certain degree, and in, in actually thinking about how much do I do in reserves and you know upfront ownership, a lot of those plans actually got laid to waste because the market shifted so much. And if you think about Q4 of 2020 to the Q4 of 2021, everything inflated, round sizes, valuations. How have you thought about your own portfolio construction? Because I know you're very disciplined when you think about ownership. I, I've heard that your minimum ownership target is 10%. But given many of the companies, especially in a hot space like fintech, were able to raise large amounts of capital, were able to command massive valuations, how do you play in a market that's like that and stay disciplined, but at the same time balance it against not losing the deals that you have the highest conviction in? You know, for our part, we kind of think of the fund construction a little bit differently. So Sedona did take us through that that exercise. And um, one of the other things I'd point out about the fund of funds and, and why we were so successful there, I think, is because uh, we were sector focused, right? And we're sector experts. And when you're building out a portfolio of venture, you don't want to have a bunch of funds that are just going to have overlapping positions. It's nice to have uh, it's nice to have kind of individual sector experts that you can kind of slot into your fund. And, and up until that point, none of these fund of funds really had like fintech exposure in a pure way. And so I think that we also kind of got lucky at the time and we were come in and take over that that fintech expert allocation in those fund of funds. And so uh, that also kind of plays into kind of how we think that fund construction. Like we've never actually sat down and put together a spreadsheet that was like a real fund model. From our perspective, the way we think about check size and ownership and all that stuff is like, we are fintech experts. We've built a team of fintech experts. Um, we have a track record of meaningfully helping fintech companies, especially in that zero to one phase, uh, like get up and get running, uh, overcome a lot of the challenges that early stage fintech companies face. Um, we just, we shorten learning curves in a really significant way for, for fintech companies. And so 
That also means that we are constantly on call. We're talking to our founders all the time. We're on the boards of a lot of these companies, which is not something most seed investors do. We, we are very deeply operationally involved. And so it doesn't make sense for us to write small checks and get low ownership when we're going to be putting that much work in. I mean, this is something we learned from 500 FinTech. We had this huge portfolio of companies where we'd written tiny checks. And you know, we had outsized ownership relative to the check size, but we're pretty small owners on the overall cap table. And if you're their first call while they have another investor on the cap table that owns 15% of the company, like that doesn't make sense. And so the way that the, the way that we've been able to stay disciplined is just to try to remember to stay disciplined about our time and our bandwidth. Like it doesn't make no matter how much conviction we have in your business, if we're only going to get three, four, five percent in the business, it's not worth our time. And so um, that's that's largely how we've how we've kind of thought about it. And we we certainly passed on companies for for valuation reasons that you know we may end up regretting in the future, but at the same time, like we just couldn't justify putting as much effort into the relationship with those founders and into those companies as we could and a similar company maybe, but where we own 10, 12, 15%. So rather than start with a spreadsheet and trying to like shoehorn our fund into the spreadsheet, I mean the way that we think about it, we we have this brand, we have this expertise. If that's something that you find is is valuable to you and is really going to help your business, then like let's come up with terms that work for us and work for you and let's build a relationship and let's build this company together. Versus like everything became very transactional over the last couple of years. And it was really just the founder comes to you and says, I'm raising three at a 35 post. Are you in or are you out? And there's $250,000 allocation for our lead. We're like, that's not really how we want our relationship to start. And that's not really how we think businesses should be built. So we'll, we'll politely pass, but thank you. <laughs> You're right. I mean, that, that was, that was happening you know, throughout the industry. And it, and it wasn't just, you know, you have 250, but it was the time frame to which you had to make a decision was truncated to sometimes unreasonable standards of a couple of days. We also need to know by yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so not, that, that makes total sense in terms of, you know, creating alignment where it's meaningful for both sides to be able to work together to create this long-term relationship where you're spending enough time. It also makes a meaningful impact to your fund. If those companies then go on and reach great exits because you have enough ownership where it does move the needle in terms of being a fund returner. There's this other school of thought, and, and, and this is something I'd love to double click on. You know, you think about the 500 startups model, which is lots of companies. Same with, you know, there's other firms, Soma Capital, again, a lot of companies, 100,000 to 500,000. The in, entire sort of calculus there is, you know, you need enough shots of, at goal to be able to hit the power law consistently, right? Because a small group of companies ever really hits that you know, level of velocity where it can, you know, be a three, $5 billion company. At least I found that there's different ways to make money. And there's certain, you know, theses that fit better with a model where you have a hundred companies or 200 companies versus 20 or 30. How do you guys think about it? I guess more generally, because you do take a more concentrated approach, more hands-on, fewer companies, bigger ownership. Under what circumstances is that the right model versus doing a lot of companies? I think we've, over the last decade or so, ending in 2021, you were really rewarded for beta, right? Like just if you invested in the internet and invested in every company, you did well. I think in particular, 500 Startups YC, you know, you invested very low valuations. And so that model works really well. The 500 FinTech Fund is performing super well, is going to perform super well. 
all the 500 startups funds, you know, they invested at low valuations. They're all performing pretty well, despite, you know, having a bunch of different managers giving check writing ability to, to like random strangers at times. And, but it was because you were investing at a low valuation. I think today that model, if you just go and invest in YC companies at whatever they're raising at demo day, $30 million or whatever, I don't think there's a formula in which that's going to be a strong returning fund. So we think, you know, as we shift from a beta works to, you know, really alpha business, I think we're well positioned, but I do think as always entry price really matters. And I think that got away from people for a long time and, and hopefully is returning now. Yeah. I'd, I'd add a couple of things to that. One, one is, um, kind of just to piggyback off what she was saying. Like, I think that asset management, just in terms of like how you look at the overall portfolio, how you help the companies within the portfolio, stuff like that is actually just going to be much more over the next several years or for the foreseeable future because of how much the market has changed. The other thing I would say is there's a lot of different ways to make money. And it's like, if that's all you wanted to do, then sure. I mean, you could just bet in a bunch of companies, like ride the wave and all that stuff. But it just feels very to us that just kind of feels very transactional like what i was saying before you know if if your sole goal is to like put money to work in these companies and then hope that something breaks out then then yeah that's one that's one way to do it i think there's an element of like founder market fit though or like gp market fit (laughs) in terms of like business model and uh you know we're just not one of the things we learned from 500 fintech is like you know we can do that but we're just not as well suited for that sort of model as we are as operators and as people who want to like help people build businesses, we don't want to invest in a hundred companies and be very shallow on all of them. We'd rather invest in fewer companies, spend more time with them, go much deeper into the business. And in a sense, like flex our operator muscles and like kind of act like half-ass operators <laughs> in a sense uh, by helping these companies, you know, not having to do quite as much hard work as the founders do, but still kind of letting us put that hat on every now and then is, is much more a style and just something that suits us better. Obviously we have a long time to prove whether it's going to work out for us, <laughs> but we're not counting those chicken jet, but, but it just it fits our model better. I think it's, it's part of our brand. It's much better suited to how we operate. Yeah. And I do think that your approach of really leaning in and spending a lot of time with your founders, especially today is going to be much more in favor as there's so many capital constraints, the milestones that companies need to hit from seed to series A are just so much higher. I'm curious in terms of what you're seeing from a founder behavior standpoint and how well your founders have been able to evolve and adapt to this very different market than we saw just 12 months ago. Obviously, the market has changed a lot. There's really a significant whiplash, which is kind of crazy, where until 10 months ago, you were told just spend money to grow. That's what you need to do. And then it basically went the exact opposite way. We're fortunate that very few of our founders did the just spend a ton of money game anyway. You know, we we had to give folks the advice that, hey, the, the world has changed. Less about the spend money, but more about like what milestones you need to hit and the move away from growth into growth gross profit that is natural when interest rates go up. And, you know, I, I think some founders got it better than others. It's been, it's been a good learning for us. What do you think the, the most difficult thing is for some of these? And you mentioned a lot of your founders have been disciplined, despite the fact that capital has been so available. 
Now, of course, it's not, which it prevents a little bit of that cultural DNA shift, uh, which is really tough to do. If you've been trained to grow at all costs and you hire a bunch of people and you're burned super high and your unit economics aren't there, it's tough to reverse course at this point if you're already halfway through a round. What are you, I guess, seeing more broadly in terms of even your companies as they're getting to the next round of funding? So, you know, you invested the seed. They're now raising a Series A today. Have you seen the Series A market shift substantially in terms of the proof points that investors are looking at? Generally, can you speak to, even if it's anecdotally, what are you seeing in terms of fintech companies getting to that Series A now? I would say it's it's very anecdotal because there's just not not a whole lot happening. The the analogy that I've I've been using lately is that you know 2021 we're just so crazy, and then I think uh, everybody's kind of expecting that 2023 and be like there's going to be some real carnage next year, and this year is almost like the pause between the two, where nobody who doesn't have to is going to bother to fundraise right now. We're in this kind of like weird purgatory reset right now, so there hasn't been a ton of data points. I would say a few companies that have gone on to raise follow-on funding from that we have absolutely seen that it just takes. 10 times longer than it used to. Uh, used to be in the last couple of years. I mean, it's kind of uh, back towards maybe historical norms. Um, takes a lot longer. Valuations are definitely a lot lower. Uh, the bar is a lot higher. So over the last couple of years, we also saw that basically anything we invested in, uh, somebody else would invest in it six months later. And that's certainly not the case now. People are being a lot more deliberate about uh, kind of where they're investing. So it's certainly like a much harder market now. I think... Some of that is just people like putting a big pause on their check writing as a whole, like not deploying capital at the same sort of velocity they were in the last couple of years. So it's not even a question of like, well, if the price came down low enough, would you do the deal? It's more like a lot of investors are just kind of like taking the meetings and talking to people with not really any intention to, to write a check, which is why I think it's kind of like a little bit of a pause while people kind of wait to see how things play out. It, it's I kind of view it a little bit like, a longer version of, of of kind of COVID, like people sat on their hands for maybe a month or two during COVID, just waiting to kind of see how things would shake out. And then everybody piled back in because we do get paid to deploy capital. <laughs> and so um, there will be a time probably next year where the, the capital, deplo- the velocity of deployment probably picks up a little bit. Uh, it's just going to be a very different world and a very different normal than, uh, than where we've been this year. One stat that I'll just throw out to you, because I actually started my career during the uh, the dot-com bubble and then the subsequent burst. And, you know, the problem at, in 2000, 2001, and 2002 is there just wasn't enough dry powder to keep these companies going. Today, there's, you know, $280 billion, last time I checked, in dry powder. But to your point, we're in a state of paralysis where, you know, price discovery is still happening. The bid ask is, you know, pretty wide in terms of what, founders might want versus what the, you know, the investing community is willing to pay. How do you think deployment is going to go of that dry powder? Are we just going to see that deployed, but it's going to take three or four years versus, you know, really getting deployed during the course of 23 and 24? What's your view on how that, you know, dry powder actually plays out? Certainly going to take a lot longer than last year when a lot of the big funds did single year funds. I think we're definitely moving back to a three-year cycle. On our end, you know, we we raised funds. It was about two years between uh, first close of fund one and our when we did fund two, and we expect to be closer to three years this time. So I think everybody's probably moving in that direction. Even you know, we were 
relative to some other funds more disciplined and that it even took us two years, but I think everyone's moving to a, to a longer cycle. So that dry powder, you know, it's, it's a few things. One, there are all these new mega funds that are really much more growth shops. There's also, you know, some of them are putting a lot of structure into deals. It's a different type of venture. I do think we probably need to be treating these things as different asset classes, really, where there should be like, there should be a designation of like early stage venture or growth because that growth investing really would have been public companies a while ago. And now some of these funds are so big, their growth, the growth fund is often five times the size or, or more of the early stage fund. It's such a great point. And, and I do think that we t- tend, we as an industry, and then of course, when you see the stats reported, lump everything into the venture category, whether it's a you know $10 million solo GP nano fund, and then you have folks like Insight and Tiger who collectively raised $30 billion across you know their last funds. But the risk return is very different. The drop in the number of funding, largely it's because the mega rounds have gone away over the last really six months. And we just haven't seen those. But as you look at the venture market, yeah, tell us a little bit about how you think about segmenting the market. Because we have a lot of LPs that are looking at the market and trying to make sense, right? Because there's so many different designations and different places you could invest. In. And we talked about this earlier. There's many ways to make money. But if we're truly moving into a world of alpha, where you can't just play the beta game and actually actually you know, expect great performance, how do you think about early stage versus late stage versus, you know, I guess even taking it a step further, the different types of funds that are out there? You guys fall into the category of seed stage funds with some size where you can lead rounds. And then there's the brand platforms. How, how do we make sense of this, this market and how the market has segmented so much? For our part, I mean, it, it doesn't help us spend a whole lot of time like thinking about how to segment other people. I do think a lot of the larger funds have transitioned away from traditional venture and really just acting. I mean, they're acting more like private equity or they're acting more like, uh, you know, like the, the Andreessen's and Sequoia's of the world as they, as they kind of convert their whole model into RIAs and start rolling out all these new products. Like they're starting to look more like BlackRock or something and less like a traditional venture fund. Which is fine. I mean, maybe it's just an it's just a, a change and it's a maturation of the asset class, a maturation of the brands themselves that have been built in the asset class. Um, for our part, you know, this is another kind of question of, of founder market fit. Like, how do we want to build our firm? How do we want to invest? Where do we see ourselves fitting into the segmentation of the overall market? And I mean, we feel like seed is kind of the best place to be. Like, we, we get a lot of questions about the the macro economy and like how it's going to impact things and like. You know, we kind of get to cheat. We don't have to be market Like we don't have to be market timers. We don't have to think too hard, like about what's happening with with kind of later stage valuations, because we're just going to keep planting seeds at the early stage at like low valuation or you know reasonable valuations and getting outsized ownership. And you know, we had people asking us about this last year, like what's going to happen in a recessionary environment, and we're like we're just going to keep doing what we do. I don't <laughs> like what else do you do? Like if you if you're investing in technology and if you really believe that financial services is going to be transformed by technology in the coming decades, just keep planting seeds. And on a long enough time horizon, everybody's going to make money. So um, I used to say the same thing when I left NerdWallet and I was trying to figure out like how to invest my own time and invest my own money. You know, I put very little money into the actual stock market 
you know, for better or for worse, because I probably would have made a bunch of money if I'd done that too. But um, uh, instead, just decided I'm going to go write small checks into a bunch of early stage companies because, you know, it's limited downside and asymmetrical upside. And you just stay alive long enough to make enough of those bets, then you know, you're going to be fine. And so, same thing with BTV. I think, you know, raising Fund 2 last year, we were able to buy ourselves a few more years to stay in business and stay stay alive long enough to make those bets and i think it will be fine i mean i think at the end of the day there's only so much you can control you can't control the macro you only can control you know your approach to what you think is going to best execute on the strategy of you're, you're taking a very secular bet on the world of fintech and i've actually heard you guys say that fintech is still in the fairly early stages you know, you look at the last 12 years, actually, fintech has been one of the most active areas of investment growth. I still remember in 2009, where people didn't even understand fintech, and they didn't think it was a thing. What do you mean by it's still in the early stages? And where do you see um, the big opportunity as we move forward? Just because there's a lot of money that's poured into the space doesn't mean that like things have materially changed. Like, payments still suck. B2B payments are, are awful. Remittances globally still suck. You know, we might, there's some like nicer looking banking applications out there, but the underlying products haven't really changed. If you look at the last 10 years, I mean, our, our analogy is it's kind of like, you know, maybe the first decade of like the consumer internet where, you know, you just added a dot com to the end of everything, but like the overall business models and stuff did not actually change. Like it, it took many years before we were like, you know, taking pictures on our phone and uploading them and like doing all this stuff with social media and things like that. And, uh, like the kind of things you can do on the web or with a phone now just were things that were not even could not even be imagined 20 years ago when the internet was still starting and we kind of going through the same phase in, in in fintech where we spent 10 years just adding com to the ends of <laughs> banks and insurance companies and stuff like that essentially we've somewhat changed the user experience by putting it in a mobile phone but at the end of the day like we haven't changed the business models and we haven't we haven't really solved a lot of real problems for real end users at the end of the day. We've just kind of made things look a little bit prettier and make it a little bit easier to distribute them. And so that's what we mean. And and then on top of that, like a lot of the money that's gone into fintech has been things that are really easy to understand, but aren't necessarily the best businesses. So like a ton of cash has gone into like neobanks because everybody has a bank account right so it's easy to understand that like there's a lot of banks and maybe banks are big business and so we should invest in banks but it kind of fundamentally misunderstands like how banks make money and like how the market works and how consumer psychology works and where the real opportunities are because it turns out that most people in america just are not actually underserved by the traditional banking service so we're hoping like eventually people will get past all of that stuff and we'll start thinking about the real kind of underlying infrastructure the real value chain of financial services start looking into some of these some of these kind of like niche area, like these large niche areas of financial services where there just hasn't been enough effort because it's not something that your average person even knows exists, much less uh, kind of understands. It's one of the reasons we like fintech because fintech is not really an industry. Fintech is many, many, many industries all kind of combined under one banner. And it's something like 20 or 25% of global GDP. If you look at financial services globally, as we do, you can't tell me that the money that we've invested into fintech over the last 10 years is really making a meaningful uh, bite at the apple in terms of that size of a market uh, where most of the people in the world are still kind of financially underserved. And, uh, many of the use cases we have day-to-day in finance still 
kind of suck. The the math on that, I think, is if you take all of the fintech companies, public and private together, and their market cap or valuation, sum it all together, it's less than 2% of the market caps of public uh, finance companies. So I think we have a long way to go. It, it certainly sounds like it. And, and I, I do think that, you know, going back to your comment is fintech is all encompassing. Even companies that don't start off as fintech companies eventually seem to layer on financial technology within their offering, whether it be the Ubers of the world. And it, and it does seem like today there's so many on-ramps to be able to offer, whether it be banking or payments, onto even a, a traditional business. It's just so much more possible through APIs, right? So there's so many different opportunities. So we've talked a lot about you know investing, and we've talked about your thesis. We talked a little bit about the fundraise, but now that it's been a few years since you launched, you know, BTV, I'd love to end with just some of the non-obvious things about running, running a firm, not just investing out of a fund, and how you guys think about all of the aspects of really what I consider building a startup that is writing checks. You know, you have a team, you have a culture, you have a certain ethos, you have LPs, you have founders. What goes into, do you think that a lot of people would be surprised in where you have to spend much more time than you people give credit for in terms of actually running the firm? Simple kind of technical answer is just that like the actual just legal and financial and just back office operational work that goes into running a firm, I think is a lot more than people tend to think. Like you kind of... I think people come into it thinking like, you know, you get a fund admin and they do all the work for you, but that's not really the case. And most of the fund admins, they're okay, but they're, they're, they definitely need to be managed. And it's a lot of time and a lot of work to manage them. Like there's a lot of time involved in running the actual firm and, 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 and all the paperwork that goes into actually doing a deal and stuff like that. It's just a lot more time consuming than you'd think and then takes you away from um, investing a lot more than you would think. Same thing with like managing LPs, like the amount of email inbound calls, Zooms and stuff like that you have to do, especially uh, in both of these things. Obviously, we like we've we've made our lives harder than we probably needed to because <laughs> we we have a pretty elaborate. We've done a bunch of SPVs. We have a handful of different funds. We have the sidecar fund where we where we, where we let our kind of friends and family invest smaller checks and stuff like that. And so that's just a lot of operational complexity to begin with. And then we also have a couple hundred LPs. And so we've have, we've made kind of made our own beds and have to sleep in it. But I think that a lot of that back office and operational stuff is probably a lot more time consuming than people really give it credit. I would also say that like one of the things that surprised us is how much we wanted to do the firm building. Like it wasn't something that was part of our original plan. Like I think that, we did kind of at the beginning think it was kind of it was going to be Jake and Shield uh, kind of forever, like raising the same size fund every <laughs> every uh, kind of cycle. You know, just spending all of our time like working with founders, just the two of us. And then you know, some of this was because the the market changed and it kind of forced us to decide how how aggressively we wanted to compete. But some of it was just like we enjoyed this so much. We we had people kind of reaching out to us. Hey, we'd love to come work with you. We'd love to come help out your portfolio companies. We'd love to learn from you, stuff like that. Uh, and we're like, okay, fine. And and started hiring people. And it was so amazing having a team and like starting to build something again. Uh, and starting to build something of, of, of kind of real meaning and real value that uh, we just got sucked right in and, and spend uh, a lot of time thinking about firm building and how we establish BTV for the future and how we kind of 
support people within the team and give them responsibility and give them some accountability and, and, and kind of help them develop as either investors or founders or however they decide to to kind of progress their careers and stuff like that. And, uh, I think that has been like just as meaningful for us as, as working with the founders themselves. Get You guys do sound like founders. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's what's so great about, you know, working with um, emerging managers and people that are building really interesting franchises. And you guys have done a fantastic job. One last question that I have is, is there just kind of looking back now, it's been a few years. Is there anything that you would do, have done differently? Had you known what you know now? It's hard. This question is always hard for me because I feel great about where we're at now. And I think, you know, some of the lumps we took early might be, might've gotten us to where we are. I think we did, you know, we did some things right that just happened to be, you know, accidentally right. Or, or we, we've found the right person, uh, on the first try, which has luck involved for sure. But overall, you know, I, I wouldn't change a whole lot. Yeah. Like, uh, I think we both feel really grateful and really lucky, frankly, like, yeah, we could talk a little bit like maybe we would have raised our funds different on different timelines or earlier or later or something like that. But like the timing seems to have really helped us. And as, I mean, as much as anything we ourselves did, so it's hard to kind of rethink those decisions. One of the things that we used to debate was like when we raised our second fund, just given the nature of the market, like, given the dynamic shield mentioned earlier, about how a lot of our LPs wrote small checks in fund one and then meaningfully upsized in fund two. We found ourselves with a lot more commitments, a lot faster than we thought that we would. And because we weren't like, because we like under, like way underappreciated, <laughs> I guess, like what the demand was going to be like, we weren't even really tallying the commitments yet because we didn't think we were really close to our target. And so it wasn't until maybe like a, a week or two before Christmas that we sat down and actually had time to start tallying up all the commitments that we had. And like our plan at that point was let's raise half of the fund before Christmas. And then in the new year, we'll go engage with like endowments and foundations and like larger institutions that we kind of started work talking to. And let's try to see if we can close one or two of those in, in the second close so that we'll have more of this kind of longer term permanent capital in our LP base. We ended up raising everything before Christmas and, and didn't even realize we had done it until it was too late and we were kind of kicking ourselves. Like I wish we had exercised more ball control. Like I wish we had been a little bit more selective about allocations, like, uh, and, and kind of played the, played the Tetris a little bit more deliberately with kind of LP selections and allocations, but then the market shit the bed. So we were like, Oh, thank God. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> thank God we wrapped it up when we did, because if we were still raising in Q1, it would have been, we would be telling a very different story right now. Right. Um, that didn't matter how good we were, like we would still have been screwed. So, so it's funny. It's like time and time again, things like that. And, you know, we, we make our mistakes here and there and, and we've failed plenty of times, but that's just part of the business. So it's also hard to, it's hard to really regret those at, at the end of the day. Yeah. It's all part of the journey. And we would, uh, completely agree with the assessment that there is so much innovation yet to be had in the financial services industry. And I personally am incredibly excited about charting the growth of BTV with you guys. So thanks again for, for being on. This was a ton of fun. Yeah, thank you. Really looking forward to seeing the growth of Allocate. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jake and Shiel. To learn more about them or BTV, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show 
as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 